This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by two co-hosts this week, the same two that you know every week, the hostesses with the mostesses. They're Jews. They work for Tablet Magazine. Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. <laughs> Did you like that? I'm really loving that introduction today. <laughs> you, you like when I just go super mid-century cheese? I love it. And her colleague and mine, Tablet Editor-at-Large, Liel Leibowitz. Shalom uvracha me'eretz ha'kodesh. Live from Israel. Live from Israel. You're forgetting your English already. Uh, English. It's super musical today on the show. Two guests, both Jews. First, uh, singer-songwriter Lisa Loeb, whom you may remember from our lifetimes, from being the soundtrack to our lives. And a conversation with cantor-turned-jazz singer Yisrael Lashes, who is running these cool jazz nights in New York City that have kosher food and kosher people. By the way, I'm sorry. It's a, it's a, it's a great interview, but like, could you imagine the spur guy being like, you know, Cantor is like uh, such an unpopular job. I need more job security. I think I'll turn to jazz. Right, right. Well, he's he's all about the money, right? If it's not Jewish liturgical music, it's uh, Yiddish ditties from the 20s. But before we get to those, uh, Liel, you have established an outpost in a country called Is, is Israel. Israel, is, you're there. Israel. Israel is real. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, we're here for the month. I've been been here now a week, which gives me a lot of time to reflect on the motherland and, and renew my neurotic affiliations. I've come to the conclusion, Mark, I think this would appeal to you slightly more than it would to Stephanie, because you're a devotee like me of the movie High Fidelity, correct? Oh, yeah, to say the least. I basically think Israel is like the Catherine Zeta-Jones character in High Fidelity. It's like <laughs> the most exciting girlfriend you've ever had. And you're like so into her. You're madly in love. Everything is great and interesting and fantastic and mind-blowing. But then like a week in, you're like, oh my God, this person's completely insane. And there's no reason for any of this drama. Because for example, so in Israel, there is an institution. This will come as a surprise to you. But I, I want to share with you some of my culture uh, of my people. <laughs> Thank you. It is called McDonald's Hakasher. <laughs> it's the kosher McDonald's, which if, like me, you keep kosher and yet crave the taste of a Big Mac, there is a place for you to go in the mall in Ramat B'Chemish. Now, part of the reason we went is because all over Israel, there are huge advertisements, as we say here, um, that advertise that the Happy Meal Prize is a freaking giant Minions movie beach towel. Now, Ooh. my Minions-obsessed eight-year-old saw this ad. He's like, dude, like, forget the shawarma, the hummus. Like, we're going to McDonald's. <laughs> right, get me to Mickey D's. I, by the way, am not Minions-obsessed, but I am beach towel-obsessed. And you oh, can my put God. anything on a beach towel, and if it comes in a Happy Meal, I'll buy that. I'll throw out the Happy Listen, Meal. So, so we're driving there, and all the way there, like, all we could talk about is like, could you believe what an advanced country, like, our freaking Happy Meal toys are like, Buzz Lightyear little wind-up bullshit toy. Here they give out beach towels. This is the best, truly, startup nation. Like, we're so in love. We get to the McDonald's. We order our Happy Meal. And then the woman's like, you want the beach towel? I say, yeah. It's like, is $8. <gasps> I was like, wait, what? What? It's like, you, you, you get the, you pay the money for the price. I was like, the whole point, literally the whole marketing scheme. The prize. It's a prize. Freaking prize. What is wrong with you people? And it's like that at Every single turn. There's a catch for everything. Wait, question. Do you have to get the Happy Meal to get the towel or could you just buy the towel? Nope, you cannot just buy the towel. You must buy the Happy Meal first. And it's not a gift with purchase. This is insane. No, no, no. Because Israel is like crazy expensive. So it's a $22 Happy Meal and then $8 for the towel. For $30, you come out with indigestion and a Minions towel. No, for $50 because you pay for parking at the mall here. Wait, wait, wait a second. 
Israeli malls don't have free parking? Nope. I feel like they've really taken a lot from our capitalist culture, from their socialist roots. Like, things have really changed. It's every freaking turn you get like. Wait, it's, it's, so it's, it's all amazing. the capitalism with none of the customer service, basically. <laughs> It's service without a smile. Service with no smile. But at the same time, no, because the service is with a smile. So, for example, we went hiking up north. It was amazing on Sunday. And then I figured out that you could get some you know, money back if you pay for like a yearly subscription, which, because we're going to be doing a lot of hiking this month, would be a good deal. So I, I go to the lady and I say, well, can I do this? And she says, yes. And I, I already paid for it. Like, there was just this whole kind of thing. And I said, you know what? Never mind, like I can contribute the 80 shekels that I or I had already paid. Just give me a new subscription. And she's like, no. I was like, what? She's like, I'm not going to let you pay more. I was like, what do you mean? It's like, wait a minute. I'm just going to WhatsApp with the regional national manager and he'll go in his computer system and he'll give you the discount. It was like amazing. The lady's like, no, you're not going to pay retail here. Like we're, we're going to hook you up, man. It's fantastic. It's like so sweet. It's just a different country. It's just like- oh, it's a it's a different universe, my friend. Liel, I love that not only are you drinking Arak because it is a different time there than it is here, you have the telltale sign on your Zoom screen that you're not in America, that you're either like in Europe or thereabouts, which is that AC up on the ceiling thing. <laughs> 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 that AC unit at the top of the at the top of the wall, which like just screams. Why put AC on window? You put AC on the wall, it's good. Is make air for all room. I love it. So, so listen, while I have been traipsing around this morning, by the way, I have ascended uh, with my children to the Temple Mount, uh, feeling very, very close to Hashem, as always. Well, I've been uh, really kind of preparing myself for the most promised. What about you guys? Where, where have you been? Leah, while you were in Israel, Mark and I were in the other promised land. We were both in Colorado and we saw each other. That is right. I saw a coworker while on vacation. <laughs> on vacation. When I was planning my trip to Colorado, a little speaking tour of some Jewish audiences in Colorado, uh, I was a guest of Jewish Colorado, which is a terrific organization out there. I thought, why not have it coincide with uh, with Edith Isidore Cohen's first birthday party? So I crashed her party. I missed the cake. I uh, actually missed her. She was going off to her nap when I got there. But, um, but I got to hang with the whole Butnik Cohen Mishpucha. Once again, in awe of the amity between the two families. I've never seen two families vacation as happily together. Hold on, hold on, hold on. The, the Cohens vacated with the Butniks? This is unheard of. I, I found the greatest, greatest hack, which is if you go away with your parents and your in-laws and your sister and brother-in-law, you have 1,000% childcare. All the time. It's true. It's There's true. always a hand looking to take your baby. Honestly, Stephanie, I, I'm, you know, <laughs> not a scientist here, but I'm willing to go out on the limb and say you're 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 the first person in the history of the world who's vacated successfully with her family and her in-laws. Every time I told someone I was doing that, they were like, you're doing what? And I was like, oh, no, we all like each other. <laughs> Guys, I'm going to say we're all thinking it's so goyish. It's so goyish. Like nobody <laughs> says anything unless they can say something nice. One, Everyone's just polite and says, thank you. There is no drama. And you feel it. You sit down with the Cohen Butniks in Vail, Colorado. Now, granted, the altitude right. is high. Everyone's a little dizzy. And there are many pina coladas being served by people in starched polo shirts. If, if these were the the Sorensons and, and the Hustveds, I'd be like, of course. You know, they sit there in silence right, and right. they drink their- But yeah. it's definitely, it's the Sphinxons and the Talbots on vacation. Right. in the mountains. Everyone's so nice. Everyone's so happy. And I was just honored. I was honored to be included for the couple hours that I dropped by. It was also a, um, a very important respite for me having, I'd been in Aspen and I had, in going east, 
I wanted to stop at Twin Lakes, uh, which is a, a beautiful glacial lake, and swim, and then I cut north to Vail. I think I'm getting my geography right. But this involved going over the Independence Pass, which is the highest point in America that you can drive. It's 11,000 feet elevation. God, God is my witness. I've never been so scared in my life. I don't think I've been, I think the one time, I've been totally candid, the one time I was this scared was when a relative had a cancer scare and we were waiting for biopsy results. That was more scary, but driving at that altitude five miles an hour on switchbacks and sharp turns with no railing. And then I finally got to, so then I hung with the Butnick Cohen's. Then I finally got to Vail for that night's event. And everyone's like, isn't Colorado amazing? Isn't it beautiful? And I said, well, have you ever driven the Independence Pass? At which point everyone says to me, oh, well, once, but no, I would never drive that again. It's, it's terrifying. People die on that. When I'm in the mountains, I realize I'm a coastal dude. I just realized I'm coastal. Would you might say you're a coastal elite? I'm... <laughs> You might say that when in this flyover state in the mountain time zone, I am a coastal elite. <laughs> Post-Tesla. I also just want to say, Mark, I really appreciate you repurposing banter content in the Wall Street Journal. You had a whole article about becoming the Tesla guy this weekend in the review section. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Did you like how you guys helped me crowdsource my Wall Street Journal essay about my misgivings about being a Tesla owner? Measure once, <laughs> cut as many times as you need. <laughs> So anyway, it was, uh, but but it was great. And I do have to say, Colorado in the summer is an awfully nice place. I mean, I'm sure it's nice in the winter too, and the skiing is great, but it's, it's hard to beat the elevation, the cool breeze in the summer. And um, diving back into the news of the Jews will be a, a return to uh, to reality. Shall we then? News of the Jews, N-O-T-J News. A little news of the swastika. Parents at a Georgia elementary school say that the proposed logo for their school resembles a Nazi symbol. (laughs) Which Nazi symbol? It's not the swastika per se. It's the eagle with a sort of medallion-like thing hanging from its talons. And I think if, if you're into, you know, World War II iconography and lore, as everyone's great uncle Fritz is. Fritz or Morty. Or Morty. You could picture that eagle that seem, that's like the other the other emblem. And Eastside Elementary School has an eagle with a sort of very angular ES diamond for Eastside in its talons. And I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, two members of the Jewish community, Rabbi Amanda Flax and Stacey Efrat, both have children who attend the school. And they complained. Flax said, quote, I want to see the logo not only taken away, I want a direct apology to our community, not just the Jewish community, but the entire community, Flax said. I feel like, and I I don't want in any way take for granted or make light of the real pain that, that at least several members of the Cobb County Jewish community felt, but I'm looking at this and I feel pretty certain that no one thought that it was a Nazi eagle with a swastika-like thing in its talons. I don't know. What's Can I get a ruling on this, Stephanie and Leo? I am the person who sees swastikas in floor tiles. Um, pretty much any, <laughs> take me to any bathroom. I will show you where there's a swastika. You're like, um, you're like, wait a minute. Also in your wallpaper. Yeah. Um, so I have whatever the thing is where you see patterns and things. My first surface level thing is like, this is an ugly logo. Mm. Like they could have done better. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the same eagle facing the same way. What is it? It's like the not the. It's like the metal, like the order of the eagle, right? I'm sure it's all coincidences. There's just too many of them. You could do the eagle without the thing, and it's like underneath. It's not working for me. 
It's not working for me, I have to say. What if they're what if they're reclaiming the eagle? What if it's us Jews reclaiming <laughs> the eagle with thing in its talons? But the eagle's even facing the same way, which maybe that's just the way the eagle faces. And I don't know, are they the eagles? Like, I have so many questions. You know, in in, in response, the uh, school principal said, well, I guess now we have to scrap our other uh, pep campaign. Homework makes you free. <laughs> <laughs> We are going to volunteer our graphic design services. If Cobb County wants an alternative logo, we're going to get together here at Tablet with our with our InDesign and our Adobe, and you know, we'll, let us know. Let us know. We're here. We're here to hook you up. I just honestly, I don't like what they did to the eagle's wings. Like the Nazis, for all their flaws, like those are actually, beautiful they were wings. Sort of, they were sort of like you know, you like design Nazis or like whatever the grammar Nazi equivalent of design is for the wings. Right. Like it has feathers. It is clearly like a majestic bird. The East Side thing is just like a freaking video game emblem abstraction type of thing. They look like you know video game controllers. I, I don't like that at all. I have to say that the school district statement kind of scares me. The rollout of this logo has been halted. Like, I feel like you could like do that in the German <laughs> accent. And we are immediately halt. reviewing needed changes. And I'm like, I'm scared. I'm scared right now. Achtung, all members of the Georgia community. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not buying it. You know what I am buying? Our guests this week. Lisa Loeb is a Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter who writes songs not just for adults, but also for children. Her 1994 hit, Stay, was on the Reality Bites soundtrack and has been in your head ever since. She's the founder of the Camp Lisa Foundation, which sends underserved kids to summer camp, and she is a famous eyeglass-wearing musician, has her own brand of glasses called Lisa Loeb Eyewear. Lisa Loeb, thank you for being a guest on Unorthodox. Thank you for having me. So I've been a fan from Stay Through If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. If you give a mouse a cookie, then it'll ask for a glass of milk, and then one thing will lead to another, and you never know what's next. Let's go to So, you know, your career has pretty much been like a coextensive with my conscious life, and it's such an honor to have you on. I want to work backwards, maybe, and I want to talk about the work that you're doing right now. I know there's a, a you won a Grammy just four years ago, right, for, yes. uh, for your children's album, and that's been a big part of your work. And I guess I'm curious, how do you balance the adult singer-songwriting with the children's work? Do you Is it like day by day, hour by hour? Is it when the commissions come in? How do you sort of construct the work life as you see it now? Well, all those things. I think it's really important as a creative person to learn how to be structured because that's where the freedom exists within the structure. <laughs> I always have ideas of what I want to do and then I make those ideas. And sometimes, yes, it is externally motivated. When I made three albums with Amazon that were all children's album, one of them was the aforementioned album Feel What You Feel, which won a Grammy, they, they wanted me to make children's records and I was really excited. I love making children's music because... There's, there's a larger palette, more to choose from. I feel like 
having been a singer-songwriter since I was a young kid and writing songs with lyrics for guitar when I was a young teenager, maybe 13, 14, I've been doing that a long time. And so it's fun to go way out of your own personal experience, to write songs with totally different images, totally different stories. And in some cases, a lot of cases, very focused on kind of like values or, or stories about what you'd like to impart to other people to tell a story. Anyway, writing children's music for me is less abstract for me than writing grown-up music, and I just like to switch gears. Also, in some of my children's music, they have reflected my own childhood. Like, I made a summer camp songs record called Camp Lisa, and there were a lot of songs, both traditional songs that my friends and I used to sing at our camp down in Texas, as well as songs inspired by those kinds of songs. Then it rolled and it rolled and it rolled and it rolled a disappointing pancake. It rolled and it rolled and it rolled and it rolled a disappointing pancake. Rolling toward the baseball field just down the road. The pitcher on the mound was winding up to throw. The crowd yelled back. And also songs about camp. So that was very focused. I also made a record of lullabies, which was turned out to be kind of a covers album where we recorded songs like The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow, a different version of it that felt more like a lullaby, In My Room by The Beach Boys, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow by Fleetwood Mac. Open your eyes and look at the day You'll see things in a different way Don't stop thinking about tomorrow and a bunch of other songs that have varying thematic content that relates to the idea of sleeping and dreaming, and also just some of them feel more like lullabies. And that ended up almost like, I hate to say jazz record, but almost like a standards record where I played with amazing musicians here in Los Angeles. So it's just project by project. Like I actually had a record that came out right before COVID, right as things were shutting down, an album called A Simple Trick to Happiness. And that was definitely a grown-up record. But I'm working on a new record now that we're mixing, which it's, I, I, I think it would make it too limited to call it a kid's record, but I did, I am recording it with a band called The Hollow Trees, who I met at a children's music event. But they're an Americana band, and we're recording songs that I listened to, again, growing up, that my parents played me, like Don't Fence Me In, and Hi Lily, Hi Low, and a bunch of other songs that you may or may not know, uh, some that are more kid-oriented, like The Hokey Pokey and other songs that are written that fit in that world. So it just, it really depends on where I am and what I'm doing. Speaking of where you are and what you're doing, I mean, we are talking at the end of June. Kids have gone to camp. I feel like it's a good time to talk to you about summer camp. I actually didn't realize it was such a part of your formative identity and, of course, part of not just your music, but but your work. You started the Camp Lisa Foundation. So could you tell us a little bit about, could you take us back to those early summers of your own summer camp experience and tell us how that sort of shaped where you are today? Yeah, I mean, I started off, like a lot of kids do, I went to day camp and, and camps around Dallas, Texas, where I grew up. Some Jewish camps, like Camp Chai, where I would routinely get pretty nauseous eating butter cookies on the bus, driving to nature someplace. Um, and then eventually I ended up going to sleepaway camp. And it was a three-week program, and I did it for years and years. And it was just a general camp. You know, you, they did sports, they did 
uh, arts and crafts, making up skits, singing songs. I think that was actually where I realized I, I had started playing guitar. My friend Almadal had an acoustic guitar, and so did our counselor, Joy. And Almadal started showing me Stairway to Heaven, maybe between seventh and eighth grade. And I started going to her guitar teacher when I got back to Dallas. But camp was the place where you made up new lyrics to old songs, which was hilarious. Like that same Stairway to Heaven, we, we wrote a song about cleaning the ca- cabin. Like, we're cleaning the cabin of one plus, you know, like, which is hilarious and fun. It, it shows, you know, when people do that with my own songs, I'm always so uh, pleased. Some people are like, oh my God, are you offended? They changed the lyrics. I think it's hilarious and awesome. So we changed lyrics to songs. We learned songs that we loved that were important to us. We sang along with each other socially. And I was always a performer and an actor and stuff, but like playing music in that way made a really big impact impact on me. And also just camp. I loved school and I, I tried really hard in school and it was important to me, but there was something so such a relief about camp. Being just a human, learning how to be a human. You learn how to be part of the community. You learn how to be a great leader. You're in a safe space. You're trying things you've never tried before. You know, like going in a lake or, you know, I'm not a big soccer player. We had to play soccer in 120 degree heat. You get a little bit of grit. You make new friends. You put yourself in situations that make you stronger in the end. And I I love that. And I think everybody should have that experience. I always hated camp and I always saw that as a flaw in myself. I was just very bad at attaching and making friendships quickly. I felt like I I failed whatever quick litmus tests people had. You You have to know me for a month to get my mojo, I think. Um, Or maybe I was just a jerk. It's funny. I did a show at Joe's Pub in New York that was a camp-themed show, but it was for grown-ups. And so I had like, I had all these different comedians and people talking about camp and their camp experience. And I heard that a lot. People hated camp. People peed in their bed. They hated, they were homesick, all those things. So I know it's not for everyone. And weirdly, as a very shy child growing up, I was very, very shy until I was in my teens, even though I liked performing, I don't know how I made friends quickly. I don't know even if I made friends quickly, but I I just, I don't know. There was just something special about being there. It was like a a secret special world. It's so true because you're all just together and you're there and like you become friends, right? Like, I don't know when you, I remember always being nervous about like getting on the bus. Like, who would you sit next to on the bus? (laughs) Yeah. But like, it doesn't matter. And I actually want to talk to you about camping because a big debate that's come up on our show recently, we like to decide like what's Jewish, what's not. It's usually just what we've done in our experience and like yeah. maybe what our family did and that we've decided is, is you know, we can, can we speak for a, a monolith of people. Yeah. Um, yes. So a lot of people have been writing in. Mark, I think, was the one who said camping as the act of camping, sleeping in a tent, making the fire, not Jewish. And then people wrote in to say it is. So where do you stand on camping? I know for a fact from a lot of people I know, camping is not (laughs) super Jewish. Um, (laughs) Thank you. You know, a lot of people, maybe including my husband, like, oh, yeah, you can have the window open at a hotel. But that being said, there's also the other, there's the kibbutzy kind of camping people who wear tevas. They're not tevas, they're tevas, who have an acoustic guitar without a case, who are real camping with the earth people, you know, so that it really does range. I took my son camping with the scouts and I was the one who took him. I learned how to set up the tent. I was open for all the possible experiences. I can't do it by myself, but like, I would love to go with other people who do know how to do it because I, but, but again, that goes from my summer camp experience where I love doing things that are challenging. That feeling of having done them is so worth it on the other side of all the anxiety and fear and, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. And like, which sleeping bag do I have to have? 
<laughs> all those multiple questions. I'm totally with you there, which is I'd be happy if other people who are competent invite me along. I will go camping with them. And pitch in. I will pitch in. Totally, totally. We have a guy in our community, goes to our synagogue, lives in our neighborhood. His name is Josh Perry. I'll give him a shout out right here. He's he's a brilliant guitarist and singer. Real like, he has a, he's, he can do cantorial stuff, but actually what he is is he's a great folky. And we are always calling on him at any sort of fire pit type event. Like, Josh, take out the guitar. Be that guy who can be the spirit leader. Do people put you on the spot for that stuff? I mean, I imagine you on the camping trip. It's like, well, you know, Moishi over here or Donna could take out their mandolin, but kind of Lisa, like, you know. I have to say, I forgot. I had a little spiel about this for a while. I said spiel. It's true. Um, I... I have to say that I went on a couple of religious school retreats with my daughter. I often have belonged to a synagogue or two at the same time. Nice. And they had a they had a religious school retreat, which I thought was really neat because I, I because it was at a camp and you get to go with your family to the camp. So I took my daughter to the camp. We show up and and there's a packing list. They're like, bring socks, bring a jacket, bring this. If you've got, bring a guitar, bring snacks, bring. Bl-. And I'm like, okay, checking everything off. Okay, I have a guitar. I'll bring my guitar. I have this. I have that. You know. And I show up with my guitar, not thinking anything of the fact that I'm like a professional singer songwriter. I'm just, I have a guitar and they said to bring one if you have one along with your tube socks and your sunscreen. I show up and there's all these parents hanging out and all these people are all showing up and they're all excited. They've been there many years. This is my first year. You know, I, I'm the, the community is very nice. The people are super nice. A lot of people who live in my neighborhood too. And I show up and there's already a dad there with a guitar. And he's he's the guy that you're talking about. He's the guy who ran in. I don't even know if he had a case for his guitar. He's the guy who sits down and everyone gathers around and then they all start singing and he plays the James Taylor song and he plays the other song and everyone's singing along and this is the best community moment they've ever had and they're like Lisa you play and I'm like uh I brought I have my guitar you know zipping it out of the case I'm like uh like I don't know any of those songs I'm like I can play a David Bowie deep cut from Ziggy Stardust like uh, would you like to hear, <laughs> like, I don't know any of those songs, like, and I'm so embarrassed. I have a goal to learn, like, five of those songs that you sit around and play that everybody knows, and, and they're so happy the person brought the guitar. I, I need to find, like, five of those songs on piano, like, if you're at someone's house and they have a piano, that I could either play and sing or sing along, like, maybe musical theater type of stuff. Like, that is one goal of mine. I'm not really that person. I don't know those songs. I'm the worst. But how intimidated was that guy? Lisa Loeb shows up. Right. I thought that's where we were going with it. <laughs> no, not at all. He was that guy. He had shorts. He knew how to play things. He was that guy, and it was an inspiration to me. Dave in the cargo shorts, just playing yeah. stuff. And his name may have actually been Dave, and he's actually, we had a conversation years later because I said, you know, I've been talking about you on stage because I get up on stage, and I feel so embarrassed that I don't know how to do the thing that you're doing. And he, I, I don't remember the story from there. All I know is my eternal embarrassment for not being the person who can get up and just do that thing. I mean, I, I just don't know those songs. I listen to like rock growing up. I could play maybe part of Over the Hills and Far Away from Led Zeppelin. Or Look, if my kids went off to religious school retreat and Lisa Loeb 
played a deep cut from Ziggy Stardust for them. I would think that was that's that's spiritual. That's that would have been, that would be. But they fine. would have gotten up by then and walked away to go get the like <laughs> leftover challah. So I have a question about playing for children in general because a lot of great artists have done children's music so, uh, also while keeping up their career working for adults as well. My question about performing for children is: Are they good fans? Adults know your catalog, right? The adults reward you in a way, and children, it's a different kind of reward. You're giving them that kind of like childlike delight that adults who are jaded and you know don't have anymore, right? I, I don't know. I, you've never played in, at a radio festival in front of a bunch of drunk guys with baseball caps turned around backward. True. That's similar to playing to children. No, <laughs> children are more immediate with their responses. If they're engaged, they're engaged. If they're bored, they're walking away. Sometimes their parents are not the best listeners, which can be even worse than the kids when the parent is like, come here, come here, Jonah. Come here, I got to go put your, I need your sunscreen. Come here. Or the parents talking with purses standing right in front of the stage because they're like, oh, someone else is taking care of my kids. I can talk to my friend. I'm like, hello, I'm on stage playing. I'm not on TV. So the, the kids are as good of an audience as the parents are when the parents are nearby. When it's just the kids, it's just a different kind of... Um, you have to be a stronger magnet to them. You know, you have to be really aware of, of their attention and where they are and being in that circle of communication with them so that... If they're, you're starting to lose them, you you try other things, you know? And and I think also as a – I know some of my earliest children's shows that I did, I was playing in New York City. I remember out – way down at the tip of, of Manhattan, there's that big park. And I get up on stage to play one of my first kids' shows, and nobody's sitting in front of the stage. They're all, like, way on the sides. And they're busy putting on sunscreen and running this way and that. And I was like, this is horrible. But then I realized, A, they're sitting in the shade. B, this is what an audience, like I had to start understanding what the audience felt like and what made me comfortable. And it's the same thing as being a grown-up. Like I prefer playing in seated theaters where people are sitting and watching. Or I can also deal with people sitting and eating and watching now. It brings people who are listeners. I don't love places as much that are daytime and it's supposed to be a big party and they're outside standing up. It's hard to keep their attention. With kids, it's the same. If I'm playing, you know, in a seated theater, depending on the city and, and the attention span of the parents, the kids are great listeners. And and I also try to set up the set so that I begin with things that something very energetic, but not too energetic, then something that they may know, something they may participate in, which grabs them, but not so participatory that they start getting wild. And then little by little, we get them on their feet, meaning me, I get them on their feet. And by the end, some of them are even on stage spinning around, but it has a progression that feels right energetically with the kids. So you know, it it's not the place to play some of my favorite kids' songs that I've written with my friends or that I've written that are more heady or more lyric-oriented. I may pull out the wheels on the bus, which I haven't even really recorded, because it's fun to sing for the kids. Sometimes the songs on recordings are different than what you want to play live. Sometimes I play kids' songs at grown-up shows because they get every detail of all those fun lyrics we put in. They're more like folk songs, you know, and those are some of the grown-ups' favorite songs because... Wow, what a relief to hear a song about a pancake that ha has a sense of humor. I mean, the, the, the song is actually called The Disappointing Pancake. But it's fun for grown-ups to hear a story rather than another song, about, you know, abstract song about love or heartbreak. Is it totally exhausting at the end of a kid's show? Because you've been, like, engaging, performing, watching. The thing is, again, as somebody who's done it a lot, I know what my limit is. Like, I know what their limit is. Their limit is probably about, some people say, come play this kid's show. You play for an hour and a half. And I'm like, no, you don't want me to play for an hour and a half. I'll play for 30 minutes to 40 minutes with an encore. 
And then I'll, I'm happy to meet and greet and talk to people and take pictures and interact in a different way. But you, you don't want me to play for an hour and a half. And it's the same for grown-up shows. Like um, for me, I, that relationship with the audience, like keeping that energy circle going of, of listening. Because I also play a lot of new songs for people in my grown-up shows, which can be really boring for grown-ups to hear. You know, to come see someone, they know one or two, three songs. Some people know lots of songs, you know. But some people only know a couple. So to be able to entertain them and explain to them and engage them and feel like you're with them so that you can get all the way through. You know, it, it, it takes a lot of, of focus and, and engagement. You, you can't tune out at any moment. So it's, it's just different but the same. Do you still have the line of eyeglasses? I do, actually. I just came from a meeting online with my eyewear line. Um, the parent company is called Classique, and um, they're based in San Diego, and, and we're always putting out new frames. I, my line is called Lisa Loeb Eyewear. We have I, the easiest place to find my glasses are at Costco, and I do mostly women's frames and then younger children frames, although petite women like myself sometimes wear the children's frames. They're not cutesy, but they are a little bit cute because I like cute and pretty things. You got known for your eyewear at a very young age very quickly. Yes. Were you an eyeglass person when that happened? Or like, was it just like, oh, I was wearing a funky pair of glasses when that publicity shoot happened, but actually I'm a scarf Oh person. no, I was like, it was like a, almost like a hobby. Especially it was in the eighties when I started wearing glasses and it was hard to find interesting glasses. And I would go to every store I could in Dallas and I found one that had really interesting frames and I'd always buy interesting frames. And little by little, I gravitated toward the cat eye frames because it was the most flattering type of look. And I realized I liked that kind of classic look, sexy librarian, kind of masculine, feminine, aerodynamic look. Not too retro, although I, I love retro glasses, like vintage with little diamonds and whatnot in them. But I've always loved glasses. And I actually sort of pushed away the whole glasses thing for a while. Pe interviewers would ask me about my glasses instead of my music. And it was so annoying. I'm like, I'm a guitar player. I am a songwriter. Why are you talking to me about my glasses? Like, And then I realized little by little that some of my favorite musicians coincidentally had glasses or style that we focused on while also focusing on music like Elton John, Elvis Costello, David Bowie, Dolly Parton. That's kind of neat, you know, to have something that people see. And then the more and more I was out there and, you know, people literally out there like in airports and playing concerts and things and on TV, so many people came up to me and would stop me and say, again, they may not talk as much about my music, but they would say, I wear my glasses because I feel comfortable because I saw you wearing your glasses. Or my daughter feels comfortable wearing her glasses because you know she was shy about it, but she saw you and she wears them. So I realized like, wow, you know, one of my best friends had glasses ever since I was little and I always thought it was super cool. So I was excited when I got glasses. But to realize that it gives people confidence and it helps them be themselves and be able to see. Uh, and now I, I can help, you know, design glasses so that people also look pretty and they're able to see. So it means a lot to me. It's it's, it's sort of a, a big deal to me. Well, as the father of two glasses-wearing daughters who definitely are owning it, much gratitude. I think it is really important. I think I think the role modeling is really, it matters. 
Awesome. And it's cool now. I mean, people wear glasses to pretend now. Can you tell us about your foundation, about the camp? Yes, I have a Camp Lisa Foundation, which, well, when I made the summer camp record, I think I had it in my head, being someone who lives out in Los Angeles. I thought, ooh, this would make a great TV show, you know, where people could watch it and learn more about summer camp, and then they might want to go to summer camp. And the TV show ideas we came up with were not picked up. In fact, in in perfect Hollywood style, we were told, oh, no, that's not going to work. And then soon thereafter, there were camp TV shows on TV, but went ahead and made the camp record. And I realized, you know, a great way to teach people about campus for them to hear the music, but why not actually send kids to summer camp? Um, I did a bunch of research and found out about an organization in New York called Scope, which is Summer Camp Opportunities Promote Education. And they not only help send kids who would not usually have the opportunity to go to camp, it's very expensive to go to some of these sleepaway camps. They help kids go to camp in safe environments, kids who might need this experience to get all the great things out of camp that we were talking about earlier. So I usually donate all the money that we make from selling the Camp Lisa record. Also a coffee blend called the Wake Up Blend from The Coffee Fool, which is coffeefool.com is a, like F-O-O-L, is a website where you can buy coffee beans and they donate all the proceeds of my charitable blend to the Camp Lisa Foundation and you can make a donation to Camp Lisa. But it helps kids go to camp who normally would not have that opportunity. Lisa Loeb, Thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week on this show. This has been great. Thank you. I, I am Jewish, yes. And I'm feeling fine. Gotta chase some cat to bed. Oh, is there concrete all around? Or is it in my head? Yeah, I'm a doodad. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. 
We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Yisrael Leshes is a cantor-turned-jazz singer who is bringing new interpretations to old Yiddish theater songs. He runs The Mansion, which is a pop-up live music house with monthly performances in New York City. Here's Mark talking to him. The band played by the river. We danced in true Latin form. So I never got to Cuba, but I got all its atmosphere. Why even Yuba and his tuba? They play the night right there. I'll save Cantor Yisrael Leshes, welcome to Unorthodox. Thanks for having me. When did you know you wanted to be a cantor? Like, take us back to age five, dance us along the path to now. When did you realize this is what you were cut out for? I, I always I always loved music. I always loved singing. I always knew I wanted to do it. I actually was not interested originally in being a cantor. I started training with a, a vocal coach when I was 20, and she got me really into it. She she was obsessed with opera and cantorial music, and she said, "No, no, no! You, you don't want to sing pop. You're like you, you could be a cantor." And so she actually pushed me in that direction. It wasn't my original path at all, but I became very obsessed because the cantorial vocal technique is very difficult, very challenging. The cha- if you want to be a good cantor, you need to be able to get up in a show that has eight hundred seats. You don't have a microphone in an orthodox show. And you need to be able to fill it with no effort. Anybody could scream till they're blue in the face. But to get up there and fill it with no effort, that kind of projection is what's really, really difficult to learn. And I became obsessed with it and I really wanted to perfect it. And I wanted to learn how it was done. And I would spend hours and hours listening to all the old recordings we have of the cantors from the previous generation in shul, in the synagogue, people recorded them, trying to learn and figure it out and how to project. That's how I got, I got really into it. Wait, wait, okay, but like, where did you grow up? Were you a big Jew? Were you grew up Orthodox? Were you into shul? I grew up Orthodox. I grew up in Australia. I know it's hard to tell. A long time ago. The accent is long gone. No, the accent is some sort of like <laughs> mid-Atlantic, South Pacific, Euro something. I don't know. It's like indeterminate, non-American. Oh, that's good. Yes, I grew up in Australia until I, was, until I was 17, moved here when I was 17. So I've spent more of my life here than there at this point. Hence the messed up accent. Pre-COVID, you were the cantor at a, a modern Orthodox shul on the Upper West Side, Lincoln Square Synagogue, right? Assistant cantor. Assistant cantor. But but you were saying you had always revered Hasidic music. What what flavor of Judaism did you grow up? Chabad. Chabad. Okay, so Chabad. Yeah. But you were working in a non-Chabad space as an assistant cantor. That's correct. Yeah. And you've left. Is that just to devote your time full time to this jazz Yiddish fusion you've been doing? 
So I might get killed for saying this. As a cantor, after a couple of years, well, it got to a point for me that I kind of felt there wasn't that much of a challenge left because when you're doing, when you're doing the davening, it's the same thing every week. Every Pesach is the same davening. Every Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur is the same thing. It hit me one day that like I could do high holiday services tomorrow with no prep. Like I know it all off by heart. And it didn't feel like there was a challenge left. And I really wanted to challenge myself and go back to my original roots, which was not to be a cantor. By that time, I had never heard jazz music, obviously, in yeshiva. But by the time I was older, I had discovered jazz and I loved, I still love jazz. And so that's when I, I wanted to switch and try, not so much to switch. I wanted to transition out, try something new. I reached out to Adam Pod, who was this phenomenal jazz arranger who lives in Brooklyn. He had arranged some cantorial music for me which I wanted to do in more of a jazzy fashion. So I knew him a little bit. And I told him, I said, I know this is crazy. I'm a cantor, but like, I want to branch out. I want to start doing jazz. I want to start doing other things. And he said, uh, like, are you, are you really sure? Why, why would you want to do that? And so I explained it to him. And he said, well, it, we have plenty of jazz singers in New York. Why would you do this? Why don't you look at Yiddish theater, which he isn't Jewish, but he, he had heard of Yiddish theater. It's this huge body of music that exists. Nobody sings it anymore. Why don't we reinvent that, turn it into modern jazz? Why don't you do that? And I said, Yiddish theater, like my grandmother used to listen to that stuff. I'm not interested. That's like the radio when I was a kid. And he said, yes, but that's the way we all think of jazz. You went to yeshiva, so you think jazz is like cool because you discovered it in your 20s. But for <laughs> us, our grandparents listen to jazz. Yiddish theater is cool. We've never heard of this. And so he, he really encouraged me to go down that path, which I'm very grateful for because I went down the rabbit hole and I'm still stuck down the rabbit hole. There is so much material, great material from that era. And I realized that I just completely misjudged it. We have so much fantastic music from the Yiddish theater era that nobody sings, nobody performs. The couple singers who do still sing it do it in, in a very purist fashion because they grew up with it, which is great. But I wanted to reinvent it and, and take it to places where it didn't go. And uh, that, that's what I'm doing now. Okay, so you're now an ex-cantor in a sense. I mean, maybe you're a cantor for life at least, but but in a, you're not professionally canting anymore. W- what do you think about this, this guild that you've left? What is the future of cantorial music? The future of cantorial music in the Orthodox world is problematic, shall we say. I, I would say, you know, when I look back, I definitely think that I'm a young cantor who did everything right. Like I spent years studying how to project correctly and how to do the vocal technique correctly and how to learn all the tunes. And then I started as a volunteer at a synagogue and then I became an intern. And then, you know, it went up the whole chain. The reality is that today in the United States, there are, in my estimation, less than 20 Orthodox synagogues in the country that still hire a cantor year-round on salary. There are many that hire for the high holidays. There are many that have somebody who's the cantor, but he's also the ritual director and runs the Hebrew school and does all these other things and is also the cantor. But an old school cantor being paid for their pipes, you know, to, to lead the service, there are very few positions left, maybe 20. 50% of them at least will be eliminated when the current cantor retires. So the synagogue is not going to hire a new one. So I kind of went through it I became an assistant cantor at a you know pretty big show, but then I'm looking around and I just noticed that like there isn't really a future here. There aren't positions, you know. It's 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 kind of the definition. I might get some people upset saying this, but it's the kind of the definition of a dead industry when you work for years and years and years and there just are no 
positions. They don't they don't exist. One reason for that, of course, is these are shuls that have lots of people who at least know the words, right? Unlike many reformer conservative synagogues Correct. where you can't count on the congregation to do this work week in and week out. Orthodox shuls don't have to pay someone. I mean, they have to pay someone if they want someone terrific like you, but they have people who can do it. So is this a one could imagine someone saying, well, this is kind of a victory for for lay education. You have lots and lots of men in your case who can do this. But of course, it's the loss of an art form. I don't know. How do you feel about this? So there are cantors out there who would say that a congregation that has the ability to pay for a cantor should. It's part of the tradition. They should. I mean, for example, Florida now has a lot of flourishing congregations. A lot of people move down to Florida. There are definitely congregations in Florida that have the money to hire a cantor, but they don't want to. And so from my perspective, I don't see it that way. I see it as a question of value. To me, when a congregation decides not to hire a cantor, they're saying, Hiring a cantor will cost us, I don't know, $100,000 a year. We don't see how the shul is getting $100,000 of value because, yes, we can send up anybody. We don't need a professional cantor. And what is the cantor really bringing? And I think that's a question really for us to look at and say, well, maybe do we have to reinvent this? Do we have to refresh this? Do we have to reimagine what cantoral music sounds like if people are not seeing any value in it? Tell me about a, a Yiddish jazz song you discovered from that era that just entranced you. So Sima Rechtsai, who I'm now obsessed with, had this incredible voice. He sounded like Perry Como. If you're familiar with Perry Como, he had a very similar voice to his. And he was married to Miriam Cresson, who, besides for being a great singer in her own right, had a legendary talent for lyric translation. She could translate English lyrics to Yiddish back and forth in a way that just was, like, staggering. And so when they went on the radio, the Yiddish theater scene was beginning to die out. They went on the radio and they started performing Yiddish theater songs and they ran out. They needed a thousand songs a year for their radio show, and they started translating all of jazz music into Yiddish. So we did a show last week, for example. There's a famous uh, spiritual Go Down Moses. Sure. We've got Pesach coming up. Go down Moses, way down Egypt land. So they have a Yiddish version that they wrote sitting at Harvard University, so saying a bit of that. Just incredible, incredible music out there. And, and the, the one at Harvard University, you have to go there to listen to it. It's not online. Yes. It's not digitized. You got to come there. You got to bring your headphones and you got to listen through thousands of CDs to find what you're looking for. That is insane. Okay. So you you left the synagogue where you've been working. Are you doing this now full time, the, the jazz singing? I have a day job as a software engineer, but singing wise, yeah, this is, this is what I'm transitioning into. <laughs> Man, we all need a day job as a software engineer. We all have a day job. (laughs) So you're a software engineering by day, but but now you've got this other project by night. Tell us about the mansion. Ah, the mansion is definitely the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. It was it was before COVID when I started dabbling in this Yiddish theater stuff. 
And it hit me one day that even if I, we pulled it off, even if we wrote the music, where would I perform it? There's no venue to perform it. And then I was thinking to myself, you know, in New York, we don't actually have a Jewish music venue. We have everything. We have kosher restaurants. We have everything you could want. We don't have a music venue for Jewish artists, similar to the jazz houses that we have in New York City for jazz artists, these small venues, 110 seats, a bar, food. How do we create that? So I really, I really wanted to create it. I reached out to an organization called the Young Jewish Professionals of New York. They're a famous networking group. They own a space in Union Square, which they use for corporate events. And it was just the most perfect space. It had the right size, beautiful sound system, a bar, and a kosher kitchen downstairs for caterers to use. And so I begged favors. I, I, I said, give it to me one night a month. One night a month when you're not using it, let me put on a show for people to come to and really enjoy themselves. And, you know, they agreed. We did three shows before COVID, once a month, and then COVID came and shut it down. But... We did our first post-COVID show last week. And I have to say, it's just, it's, it's hard to describe how cool it is. It is just, there's a magical vibe. People are so grateful that it exists. They love it so much. It's just a place for unabashedly Jewish entertainment. I've had people like Yankee Lemmer there, who's a, a cantor. We've had Frank London, who's a klezmer legend. That's the only thing you need. You gotta have a little muzzle. Muzzle means good luck. Cause with a little muzzle, you'll always have a buck. We flew in Daniel Zamir from Israel, who's a contemporary Israeli jazz artist. So I'm bringing in all kinds of people, but the goal is to do this once a month. We have an open bar, kosher food, beautiful, intimate venue, and it's just, it's magic. It's just magic. So Yisrael, could you introduce for us a little bit of something you're proud of that, that you've put down on uh, as a recording? Yeah, sure. So so the newest song that I, I just released is a song called Ginger Welt, Younger World, which is about the world becoming a br better, brighter, happier place. And is a song that I found, not a well-known song from the Yiddish theater. We changed it from a kind of stately anthem into a much more upbeat uh, message, which is a message that I think people could relate to. We turned it into walking jazz, and this is what it sounds like. Let's have a listen. I developed fair and schöner, liebe Gräser sind kleiner, zwischen Freuen, zwischen Männer, zwischen Land und Land. So if people want to find out more about your work, about the mansion, is there somewhere online they can go? The mansion, the website is themansion.nyc, and you'll find the music online on YouTube. Yisrael Leshes of The Mansion, thank you for being Jew of the Week on Unorthodox. Also mutig in der Reihen, in der Reihen zu befreien, zu befreien und befreien. 
Okay, time for some Mazel Tovs. Actually, today there's just one Mazel Tov, and it is to this team, the Tablet Studios team, who is at work on so many great new podcasts that you are going to be hearing about in the coming weeks, and is, of course, continuing to put out amazing episodes of Unorthodox and Take One. And I'm just really, really proud of this team, and I can't wait for all of you to hear everything we're working on. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by Mark Oppenheimer with Leah Leibowitz and me, Stephanie Butnick. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Sarah Fredman Ader, Daron Ruskay, Tanya Singer, and Sam Hacker. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can get Unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Send us snail mail. Send us letters from camp. We are P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Daniel Shalom Kaiman at Congregation B'nai Amuna in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We come to you from the blissfully air-conditioned Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.